Good evening. I'm Alfred Hitchcock. That is as far as I let poor Alfred get last time, before mercilessly cutting him off and discussing the history of the show instead. This time we're going to get down and dirty and talk about the first episode in detail. And since that is the opening of his intro for the first episode, I'm going to rewind him a little bit and let Alfred get through the whole thing this time. Good evening. I'm Alfred Hitchcock, and tonight I'm presenting the first in a series of stories of suspense and mystery called, oddly enough, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I shall not act in these stories, but will only make appearances, something in the nature of an accessory before and after the fact, to give the title to those of you who can't read, and to tidy up afterwards for those who don't understand the endings. Tonight's playlet is really a sweet little story. It is called Revenge. It will follow Oh dear, I see the actors won't be ready for another 60 seconds. However, thanks to our sponsor's remarkable foresight, we have a message that will fit in here nicely. So, let's look at Revenge. First broadcast, October 2nd, 1955. Starring Ralph Meeker and Vera Miles. With a teleplay by Francis M. Cockrell and A.I. Bezerides based on a story by Samuel Blah, in this case directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And I suppose I should give a spoiler warning here now, because with this episode and every episode, we're going to go through the entire story and give everything away. So if you don't want to know, go watch the episode first, and then come back and listen to the rest of this. And I should also add that this time around, we're going to have major spoilers for Vertigo and minor spoilers for Rear Window and Psycho. So if you haven't seen those films, you may want to check them out first and then come back and listen. Now, Francis M. Cockrell, who was born in 1906, died in 1987, was a frequent screenwriter for the Alfred Hitchcock Presents program oftentimes co-writing with his wife, Marion Cockrell. He was a prolific television writer, writing for Perry Mason, The Outer Limits, the Batman 1966 program, and others. A.I. Bezerides went uncredited in this program. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion quotes Bezerides. He says, What I did was polish the scripts, and back then, you didn't get any credit for that. I did a lot of polishing. I was considered one of the best for dialogue, and I understood deliveries between people. There were many scenes that the producers felt poorly, and so they asked me to make the dialogue better and add to it. I remember doing many of the Hitchcock shows, but the only one I remember is Revenge. A nice little piece of trivia is that Bezerides was also the scriptwriter for the film Kiss Me Deadly, which came out in that same year, 1955, and which also starred Ralph Meeker playing Mike Hammer in a classic film noir with one of the craziest endings you'll ever see. So if you haven't seen Kiss Me Deadly, you should um, check it out. Ralph Meeker is not 
necessarily well remembered today, though he was a very accomplished actor in the 50s and 60s mainly. He was born Ralph Rathgeber, and before he played Mike Hammer in Kiss Me Deadly, he took over from Marlon Brando on Broadway to play Stanley Kowalski in A Streetcar Named Desire. He's in um, a couple of other Hitchcock episodes, as well as other classic noir anthology TV like The Outer Limits. And he died in 1988 at the age of 67. Here he is Carl Spann, an engineer who has brought his wife to the West Coast because she's had a nervous breakdown. The story begins with almost two minutes of no dialogue. The camera starts outside and slowly moves in to a trailer. It passes by Carl's car outside, which has a license plate BD3028. The numbers add up to 13, which apparently shows up in a lot of Hitchcock films, according to some of the things I've read, though that seems a little bit overblown. So the camera moves inside, and an alarm clock rings as the camera pans the trailer. Carl wakes up turns off the alarm. We hear the clock ticking. We hear other ambient sounds. There's no background music whatsoever as he goes to make breakfast. First of all, he kisses his wife, and then he goes to make breakfast. His wife continues to sleep during those two minutes of no dialogue until finally Carl comes to wake her up, and this is the first thing he says to her. Hey, worthless. Breakfast ready. So soon? Sure. I don't know how long it takes to get to this plant, and I don't want to be late the first day. Mm. You will make a spoiled do-nothing out of me. I'll give you every assistance possible. Hey, worthless. And what's her response? You will make a spoiled do-nothing out of me. I'll give you every assistance possible. So clearly there's a lot of affection here. There's actually a lot of passion. But there's also this strange sort of undercurrent of disrespect. Part of it, you could say, is inherent in the way women are often treated in 1950s programs. But there's also an aspect here that uh, becomes more than that because the very Miles character, Elsa, has had a nervous breakdown. So... To some extent, while he's trying to coddle her, he's also sort of bringing that up in a strange kind of heartless way. She plays right into it, and they clearly have a very happy relationship and marriage. But this does sort of bring us to one of the things that we're going to have to look at here, and that is the way women are treated in programs like this and the way Alfred Hitchcock treated women. We'll get into that a little bit later. But to start with, let's look at Vera Miles. Vera Miles was an actress and a model. She was actually Miss Kansas of 1948. Hitchcock saw her in a program entitled Pepsi-Cola Playhouse, and he put her under contract. 
as he did with many women over the years, these exclusive contracts. This actually was not the first episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents that Hitchcock directed. He directed first an episode called Breakdown, which ends up showing up a little bit later on. But he moved this one up to be the first program because he wanted the spotlight Vera Miles. He also planned to star her in Vertigo, which is a film that has its own issues with men and women. But she got pregnant. And that was it. And Hitchcock would do these sorts of things. He would turn on women when he couldn't craft them just the way he wanted to. And they did something outrageous like get pregnant. So essentially he decided to blackball her from Vertigo. From what I've read, by the time they actually started filming Vertigo, Vera had had her baby so that he could have cast her at that point if he'd wanted to. But he went with Kim Novak. In any event, Hitchcock used Vera Miles again in um, The Wrong Man, and we'll get to that in a bit. And she's also Marion Crane's sister in Psycho. But in both of those, and in this, he puts her in situations where she's rather plain. He makes her rather plain. In the first two, this episode and The Wrong Man, she actually becomes quite traumatized. But I'm getting ahead of myself with that. Vera Miles was also in The Searchers, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. She's in one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes, Mirror Image. She's in The Outer Limits. She'll appear later in uh, two Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes, Don't Look Behind You and Death Scene. She's also in Incident at a Corner, which was the television program that Hitchcock directed for Ford Star Time Theater. This is Norman Lloyd from the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion talking about Vera Miles. I think what happened with Vera is that she just wanted to resist the control that Hitch liked to exercise over people who worked for him. I remember that when I was working for him, Sam Spiegel was making a picture in England and wanted Hitch to let me go for a period to produce the picture for him. Hitch said no. Hitch just wouldn't brook anything like that. There was another actress, Joanna Moore, who did brilliant work on the Hitchcock shows. She was a marvelous actress. Hitch put her under contract, and he then wanted to change her hairdo and things of that nature. As soon as that happened, Joanna Moore quit. I think this was the same thing that happened with Vera. I think Vera had her own life, and she wanted to be in control of that. So she just resisted. And as soon as the resistance appeared, Hitch was no longer interested, because you just couldn't do that with Hitch. You had to fit into his operation, so to speak. I was very fond of Vera, and we used to hire her on the hour show. So there you go. And again, we'll get back to this a little bit after we finish discussing the entire episode. So now they sit down to breakfast, and they end up having a discussion about the ways of the world. We get a little exposition in here, but we also get Elsa's naivete. I wish I didn't have to go. I hate to leave you here alone. Oh, don't worry about that. I'll be all right. Probably get a little bored, though, without you. The last three days have been so wonderful. But otherwise, I'll be all right. Why shouldn't I? 
Oh, no reason. It's just that I don't know anything about the people around here. Would you like me to tell you about the people around here? Yes, tell me about the people around here. Well, they're friendly and kind and generous, if you expect them to be. And most of them would be very quick to help someone they thought was in trouble. There'd be a sprinkling of sourpusses, but only slight, a soup song. In short, they'd be like most people everywhere. Very nice. <clears throat> Practicing nine hours a day from the age of ten. And they make a great ballerina, I suppose. But I'm afraid it'd cut you off from the rest of the world, sweetheart. You're much too cynical. I can't believe that your world is any more real than mine, and I know that mine is much the nicer. Yeah, I guess it is. And some of it spills over into mine and makes it nicer when I'm with you. And what are you going to do all day in this lovely imaginary world? Well, I'll go for a walk on the beach, as the doctor prescribed. And I'll rest a lot. And I'll sunbathe a little, as the doctor prescribed. And then I think I'll make you a surprise. You know, I may be a woman of hidden talents. And some not so hidden. husband to say, even a somewhat new husband. It was never said with better reason. So we learned several things. We learned that Elsa was a ballerina. We learned that uh, a doctor is prescribing rest and exercise. So we know something's gone on there. Since we're watching an Alfred Hitchcock program, even the very first episode of the TV series, we've got a pretty good idea that Carl is not much too cynical and that Vera's worldview is going to be sorely tested. I love that she actually says a soup song at some point in her description of what the world is like, which gives a certain nobility to her, I think, but also a fragility. And the scene ends in probably the most tender moment that the two characters have in the entire show, which makes what happens next all the more haunting. Now, as Carl drives away, he stops at another trailer and he speaks to Mrs. Ferguson, who is a neighbor out there watering her garden. And he asks her if she'd look in on his wife while he's at work. So Mrs. Ferguson comes by for a visit and Elsa tells her, Please excuse the mess. You might think an army of vandals just passed through. All that actually happened is I baked one small cake. Well, it takes a little while to get used to working in a trailer. So it's not an army of vandals that's going to pass through, but someone is going to pass through. And the damage that that person causes is going to be worse than anything vandals could do. Uh, you may have recognized Mrs. Ferguson's voice. She was played by Francis Bavier, who was... Aunt B on the Andy Griffith Show. Frances Bavier died in 1989, a week shy of her 87th birthday. According to Wikipedia, the immediate causes of death were listed as congestive heart failure, myocardial infarction, coronary artery disease, and arteriosclerosis, with supporting factors being breast cancer, arthritis, and COPD. You can't do an Alfred Hitchcock Presents podcast and not mention something like that. Anyway, Mrs. Ferguson and Elsa sit down to have a little chat. You and your husband have just come out to California, haven't you? Are you here for your health? Yes, I had a 
small breakdown, they called it, so the doctor prescribed lots of rest and sun and sea. Luckily, my husband, who's a, an engineer, he uh, could transfer to his plant out here and for six months, and everything worked out just fine. Won't you come sit down? Well, it won't take you long to recover, I'll bet. You look fine right now. Oh, I'm strong in the muscles. I trained as a dancer in the ballet. This was just nerves. I was dancing my first part as a ballerina, and Carl and I were married at the same time. I, I guess it was just a case of too much happiness at one time. So here's Elsa again, minimizing things, trying to put a happy face on things. It was just a small breakdown. It was a case of too much happiness at the same time. I don't know what that means. After the conversation, they step outside. Elsa is actually wearing a bathing suit, a two-piece bathing suit, with one of Carl's shirts over, showing off her legs. She comes out to a lounge chair in front of the trailer, and she takes off the shirt, showing the two-piece bathing suit. The camera ogles her, moving from head to toe, showing off her legs. Many of the men watching on television are probably ogling her, too. Something that has to be in the back of their mind when we get to Elsa's fate in this episode. So time passes. Carl comes home from work. Mrs. Ferguson is back in her garden. He gives her a wave from his car. He opens the front door of his trailer, his arms filled with groceries, and smoke comes billowing out. The smoke is coming from the oven. It's the cake that Elsa was baking as a surprise. Carl goes into the bedroom and he finds Elsa lying unconscious on the floor. He takes her in his arms in sort of a parallel to when he took her in his arms at the beginning of the program and said, hey, worthless. Now she's much worse off than worthless. She's horribly traumatized and, as he says, beaten and badly hurt. He puts her on the bed. Her legs are bent, so he straightens them out. And the camera moves in on her legs again, just as it did when it was ogling them. Only now we've got a totally different situation. And he finds a carnation in Elsa's hand. Now, I've read a couple of reviews of this episode in which people have remarked on the carnation and that it's never actually explained, and at the way that Mrs. Ferguson looks at Elsa when she's sunbathing. Here is a quote, for example, from blogger Matthew Hunt. There are two inexplicable moments. A female character looks at Miles's legs for slightly too long, and Miles is seen holding the head of a carnation. The carnation clearly suggests that Miles has been deflowered, though its status as a clue to the attacker's identity is not explained, and potential suspicions about the other female character are also unresolved. I think in spite of those little oddities, we can take Elsa at her word when she tells her husband that she was attacked by a salesman. But before she says anything about a salesman, she first says this. What, darling? He killed me. Who? He killed me. The, the cake. I came in to see the cake. And when I turned around, he was standing there 
before I... He said he was a salesman. And when he asked me for money, I, I refused him. And then he grabbed me. And I screamed. And he choked me. You don't have to have seen any of the attack to be just devastated by that description. It's horrible and painful to listen to. Vera Miles is great in that scene. She's wide-eyed but vacant-eyed and so clearly hurt and traumatized and that cheerful, optimistic Elsa that we saw earlier in the show with her loving smiles to her husband is gone. Now, the line, he killed me, talking previously about how you don't show things in 1955, I think it's pretty clear that what that means. That means that he raped her. This is somebody who already is recovering from a breakdown who viewed it as coming from too much happiness. Well, there's no way to interpret this as any sort of happiness, so there's no way to deal with this or face this. Though it's interesting, through the rest of the episode, she does say a lot of yeses and that would be nice and things like that, which seems to be an attempt to still get back to some sort of equilibrium and happiness, but it just isn't there. And the, the lines are so empty and hollow that they're just heartbreaking. And that clock is back, ticking in the background mercilessly. In the morning, it was bringing a new day. Now it's bringing a new life entirely. So the police are called and the doctor is called. The police lieutenant is played by an actor named Ray Teal, who is a very familiar actor if you watch any 60s television. He appeared in a lot of shows. Mostly westerns. He was in Bonanza, Wagon Train, Rawhide, things like that. He's in a Twilight Zone episode called Printer's Devil, starring Burgess Meredith. And uh, he's in seven other Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes, so we'll run into him again. Anyway, the police examine the scene, and they question the few people that they can question. And they get a very bland, generic description. Six feet tall, gray suit, dark hair. That's it. The doctor reports that Elsa is fine physically, but mentally not so much, and that this attack could result in permanent damage for her. So he advises them to leave the trailer and go to a hotel. So that night, the clock ticking once again, Carl leans over Elsa, over her body again, as he has twice before in the episode. And he tells her, if I ever find him, I'll kill him. Yes. Yes. Elsa, the doctor said we should move out of here as soon as we can. Go to a hotel. Would you like that? Do you feel up to it? Yes, that would be nice. Tomorrow, perhaps. You think you'd know him if you ever saw him again? Yes. 
Oh, yeah. They drive into town the next day. And you have one of those great rear projection car driving scenes that Hitchcock used so often and that start looking phonier and phonier as he goes along. They're sitting in the car. Carl's driving. Before Elsa was wearing her bathing suit, Carl's shirt over the bathing suit. For breakfast, she had this nice frilly nightgown. Now she's in a long sleeve blouse buttoned all the way up to the top. And as they pass pedestrians on the street, Elsa takes a look at a man walking along. A man about six feet tall, dark hair, wearing a gray suit. There he is. That's him. That's him. The man goes into a hotel. Carl pulls over into a parking space. He has a wrench under his seat. He pulls it out, stashes it up his sleeve, gets out of the car. He puts money in the parking meter, which demonstrates that he is still a law-abiding citizen, at least up to this point. And he follows the man into the hotel. He waits until the man gets into his room. This is back in the days when hotel room doors didn't lock automatically when you closed them. So he can stand outside while the man goes in his room and then very carefully opens the door and slips in. Now we don't actually see the killing. What we see is a mirror which is right opposite the front door and then shadows in the mirror of Carl using the wrench to hit the man over the head and a sound effect that sounds like somebody smacking a baseball into a mitt. There's a radio playing in the background. In fact, the only time there's any music in the entire episode is from radios, and it comes at bad moments. There's the radio now when Carl murders the man. The radio is on when Carl first gets home to the trailer and has the smoke coming out of the front door. Now, Hitchcock is quoted in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion about this episode, and he says, I've heard some say my stories are strong stuff, I can't help raising my eyebrows at this. I've never violated any code in any of my pictures, whatever the code may be. I do everything by suggestion. You won't see violence in my films. All that is suggested. Like in Revenge, which I directed with Vera Miles and Ralph Meeker, if you'll notice, I didn't show Meeker slugging the victim at all. And it's interesting to me that in talking about not showing the violence, he goes back to Carl's murder of the man in the gray suit and doesn't mention Elsa's rape at all. Carl goes back to the car, tells Elsa it's done, and they resume driving. Elsa looks over to the sidewalk and says, There he is. That's him. That's him. And the sirens let us know that Carl is not going to get away with this as opposed to a number of other characters in Alfred Hitchcock Presents who do get away with their various crimes, only to have Hitchcock have to engage in retribution in his closing narration, often to an absurd extent. Okay, 
So there you go. It's a very simple story. But does that mean that everything behind it is simple? In other words, are we brutalizing and traumatizing this woman just for a twist ending? Is that it? Is that all there is to it? Well, if you look at the short story, which was published in Collier's Magazine in 1947, the editor has put a tagline at the beginning that doesn't appear anywhere in the body of the story itself. And that tagline is, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So let's look at the story for a moment, which is actually even simpler than the TV episode. Uh, as I said, it was published in Collier's, January 11th, 1947 issue. The story is narrated by the husband, who never gets a name. Their last name is never mentioned. All of these details that we have in the episode about her being a ballerina, none of that is there. They're camping near a town called Campbelltown, and there's an escaped convict. So it's the old escaped convict routine. There's no neighbors around. There's no Mrs. Ferguson. They're all alone in the middle of nowhere. The husband goes to buy groceries in town. He comes back and he finds dinner burning on the stove. Now, before that, we have this description that the husband gives of his wife, which is very revealing of his point of view. He says, In the short while that I had known her, and in the single month of our marriage, I had grown to cherish that smile and the soft, rich language that sometimes accompanied it. So strange that warm directness with which she shared my life. For in the presence of other men, there was only shyness. I think that she was afraid of men. Something in her slender, glowing warmth made their blood stir. She knew that, faintly, innocently. When the bold ones stared at her, she would ask me to hold her close and never tell me why. He finds his wife naked and bruised. He's certain that it must be the convict that has done this. But his wife says, no, it was a salesman. Are you sure? Did he carry a suitcase, a display? He asks her, yes. So it's not the convict. It's nothing unusual. It's no suspense cliche. It's an ordinary man in ordinary circumstances doing something truly terrible. So then, of course, we get to the point where that's him, that's him, and the husband kills the man that she's accused. And now back to the text of the story. Curiosity prompted me to glance again at the still figure on the floor, but I no longer cared. It might be hours before anything happened. I might be suspected or I might not. None of these conjectured bothered me. I was reasonably safe from suspicion, that I knew, except perhaps from this, this ordinary individual. I turned and went out quickly, closing the door behind me. And with that closed door behind me, in that quiet carpeted hallway, I at last felt clean, free of obsessing shame. So really, it's all about him. It has little to do with the fact that his wife has been raped, beaten. It's about his shame. And in the story, there's never any indication that the police will catch him. The police are not even informed of the crime. But he now feels clean free of that shame. Never mind what his wife thinks. Now, the story was adapted by EC Comics as well, without permission, as they tended to do with the early EC Comics. And uh, it appeared in Crime Suspense Stories number one, only the title was changed to Murder May Boomerang with artwork by Johnny Craig. And in that story, it's changed to a man and his father. So the rape aspect is gone. The father is beaten while they're out camping. 
in volume one of Crime Suspense Stories, the EC Archives, Max Allen Collins writes, What separates Craig's tale is the poignant father and son relationship. Many snap-ending stories are ironic, but this one is tragic. Additionally, Craig already is reaching into his noirish bag of tricks, rain effects, surrealism replacing outright gore, abstract designs for background, panels minus borders. Crime Suspense Stories number 1 is dated October-November 1950, so it predates the Hitchcock episode by five years. And, it should be noted, it's worth reading the story, even though you now know the surprise ending. I also want to mention briefly the 1985 remake of the episode. There was a resurgence of anthology shows in the mid-80s, spearheaded by Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories. But there was also a remake of The Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Now, The Twilight Zone may have suffered from the lack of Rod Serling in the 80s version, though I think it's underrated. The Hitchcock stories were entirely different. Alfred Hitchcock died in 1980, so we're talking about five years after his death. But since it's Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Hitchcock has to appear. So what they did is they colorized the old intros and outros of the previous shows. And since most of them didn't refer specifically to the episode that they were introducing anyway, they could use any intros or outros that they wanted. But the show also was primarily remakes of episodes of the original series. There was an Alfred Hitchcock Presents pilot for the 80s show. And that pilot featured four half-hour episodes. But once you got to the actual series itself, the first episode of the series was Revenge. It starred Linda Pearl, who has had a long acting career. But unfortunately, I always tend to think of her as the gum-chewing girlfriend of Richie Cunningham on Happy Days. And it's not very good. I've watched it. I've watched it so that you don't have to. But if you really want to watch it, it's available online. So go to it. In their book, The Films of Alfred Hitchcock, Robert A. Harris and Michael S. Lasky referred to the original Revenge episode as a one-joke plot. In their review at the time, the New York Times said, Last night, Mr. Hitchcock was a shade careless. He ran out of suspense before he ran out of film. And I suppose you could look at this episode as a one-joke plot. And I suppose it can seem sort of flimsy. I'm not sure how predictable it is at this point. I don't think it was predictable to the people at the time, though maybe it was. But it also resonates, and it certainly resonates today in a very different way than it resonated back in 1955. Elsa is very much in keeping with the vulnerable women characters that show up in Hitchcock's films. Now, to be fair, there are also some strong female characters, including in the films he had just made at the time of Revenge all of whom were played, probably not coincidentally, by Grace Kelly, because Grace Kelly is the epitome of the kind of woman that Hitchcock wants to celebrate. In Hitchcock Truffaut, Francois Truffaut talks to Hitchcock about Grace Kelly and her sex appeal. Truffaut says, You stated several times that Grace Kelly especially appealed to you because her sex appeal is indirect. And Hitchcock replies, Sex on the screen should be suspenseful, I feel. If sex is too blatant or obvious, there's no suspense. You know why I favor sophisticated blondes in my films? We're after the drawing room type, the real ladies, who become whores once they're in the bedroom. Poor Marilyn Monroe had sex written all over her face, 
and Bridget Bardot isn't very subtle either. Truffaut says, in other words, what intrigues you is the paradox between the inner fire and the cool surface. And Hitchcock replies, definitely. I think the most interesting women sexually are the English women. I feel that the English women, the Swedes, the Northern Germans, and Scandinavians are a great deal more exciting than the Latin, the Italian, and the French women. Sex should not be advertised. An English girl looking like a schoolteacher is apt to get into a cab with you, and to your surprise, she'll probably pull a man's pants open. So there's Hitchcock, naked, so to speak, talking about how he views women and sex. In The Dark Side of Genius, Donald Spoto says of this episode, Hitchcock brought in Vera Miles and directed her in Revenge, in which she plays a role that is, in fact, a curtain raiser for her performance in The Wrong Man, and that locates one of Hitchcock's favorite images of woman, the doll-like beauty rendered powerless by delusion or romantic fixation or sexual trauma, who at once invites and then entraps and makes guilty a man who is drawn to her. I've mentioned The Wrong Man a few times and talked about how Vera Miles' role in that film is very similar to her role in Revenge. Let's listen to a clip of Vera Miles in The Wrong Man. Rose, it's almost morning. Haven't you gone to bed yet? No. Honey, it's, it's chilly in here. You should have been asleep a long time ago. I can't sleep. Rose, this is the second night I've come home and found you awake. And you're not eating either. Honey, this isn't right. Don't you think you ought to see a doctor? There's nothing wrong with me. Why should I see a doctor? We can't pay for things now. How could we pay for a doctor? You went to the loan company to borrow money for a vacation. You did that when we couldn't afford it. You always wanted to buy things on time. I told you not to. I told you they'd pile up and pile up until we couldn't meet at all. Rose, and honey. it did pile up. And then they reached in from the outside. And they put this last thing on us. And it'll beat us. And you can't win. <gasps> they spoiled your alibi. They'll fix it so that they can smash us. And they will. They'll smash us down. That's Henry Fonda acting with Vera Miles there, of course. So how did Hitchcock treat Vera Miles besides the fact that he banished her from vertigo when she became pregnant? Well, according to Donald Spoto in his book Spellbound by Beauty, I feel the same way directing Vera that I did with Grace, Hitchcock told a reporter. She has a style, an intelligence, and a quality of understatement. He seemed to disregard or felt he could soften the absence in Vera's photos of the single most important quality that gave Grace Kelly's image so much nuance and appeal, warmth. His plans for Vera moved along at a rapid gallop. 
More clothes and makeup tests, more discussions about projects, more talk about her personal wardrobe, and more considerations about where and with whom she must and must not be seen publicly. Vera Miles is the girl who is going to replace Grace Kelly, Hitchcock told the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. He also chose to discount the fact that Vera had a full life with two young children by her first husband and a recently contracted second marriage. But she was to be completely made over, as if turned into a new creation without a past. And to this enterprise, he gave himself with obsessive fascination. Hitch had an obsession with her, sure, according to his associate producer, Herbert Coleman, but it never went beyond imagining. He has never complimented me, the actress said while they were filming The Wrong Man in New York during the late winter and spring of 1956, or even told me why he signed me. If he had hoped his attitude would keep her alert and docile, he'd miscalculated. To begin with, as costume designer Rita Riggs observed, Vera was a lovely girl, too independent to be anyone's trilby. That's to Hitchcock's Svengali. She worked carefully and effectively with Hitchcock and Henry Fonda on The Wrong Man, a disturbing black-and-white movie based on a true story of a man falsely accused of armed robbery. As the victim's wife, Vera gave a haunting performance of a sensitive woman's descent from depression into madness, her expression becoming gradually more distant and affectless as she loses faith in everything, the judicial system, her husband, and herself. After delays due to script problems and illness, Hitchcock was finally ready to begin production on Vertigo. Vera's wardrobe, hair, and makeup tests had been completed, Hitchcock said, recalling the events of autumn 1956. Everything had been very carefully planned and prepared, and Jimmy Stewart was ready and waiting. Then she got pregnant, and in the spring she withdrew, and this was going to be the part that would make Vera a major star, a real actress. Hitchcock considered her departure a defection from their mutual best interests. Over the span of years, Vera Miles reflected later, he's had one type of woman in his films, Madeline Carroll, Ingrid Bergman, Grace Kelly. I tried to please him, but I couldn't. I was stubborn, and he wanted someone who could be molded. As for Vertigo, he got his picture, and I got a son. She remained under contract to Hitchcock, appearing in a few of his television programs, and was later assigned a supporting role in Psycho. I lost all interest in her, and I couldn't get the rhythm with her going again, he said. When Hitchcock and I discussed Vertigo at some length in the autumn of 1976, I suggested that Vera might have given him the performance he wanted, but that her replacement, Kim Novak, was born for the role of a Kansas girl, like Vera, twice refashioned by exploitative men into the image of another. Vera walks on the ground, was my analogy during our conversation, while Kim seems to float. She's the ghostly figure you wanted for Vertigo. His quiet response, perhaps, at least I got to throw the new girl into the water. And so Hitchcock had to force the actress finally cast in Vertigo to be a surrogate, to substitute for the one he had initially chosen for the role. This, of course, is the major theme of the picture. I should note that in a 1983 interview with Richard Friedman of Newhouse News Service, Vera Miles defended Hitchcock. She's quoted in the article as saying, when you signed a contract with Hitchcock, it stipulated the number of hours a day you would work. And as for playing casting couch to get the role, I'd have told him to go to hell. 
Neither of us had time for that kind of thing. It is true, I suppose, that Hitchcock had a bit of a Pygmalion complex. He wanted to make me into a superstar, but I just wasn't interested. It was soon after he'd lost Grace Kelly to Prince Rainier, who met her when she was working on To Catch a Thief. Hitchcock found he'd priced her out of the market, or at least his market, when she married Rainier and became the Queen of the May. So when we first met in New York for the wrong man, he may have wanted to create another Grace Kelly out of me. He assigned me the job of entering society on the jet set level. I have nothing against society, but it just wasn't me. I was a working mother, busy raising my children, and my private life has never been discussable. This is Tippi Hedren, star of The Birds and Marnie, speaking about her relationship with Hitchcock. I don't know if uh, any of you uh, have, uh, women have had uh, uh, the horrible experience of being uh, the object of someone's obsession. Have any of you? I don't know whether you'd even answer that, but um, if you have, you would know exactly what that is like, and it is oppressive um, and um, frightening, and, um, and you find out that you've been followed, and you find out that your handwriting has been analyzed, and you find out um, uh, that you're being spied upon and uh, uh, made demands that you would never acquiesce under any circumstance. And it becomes um, an, a situation of not being able to uh, uh, deal with it, not wanting to deal with it, yeah. and not dealing with it. Or I should say I dealt with it by becoming uh, a master at getting out of the room, having a reason to get out of the room, and um, so that I wouldn't have to be um, alone with him. That was Tippi Hedren in 2012. Here she is in 2018 on CBS Sunday Morning talking again about Hitchcock with the last quote being particularly interesting. You can say, me too. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. And I did have those me too kinds of, of situations. Oh, yes. He said, I'll ruin your career. Yes. And it was because you? Because I turned him down. Why do you think there are biographers, people who've worked with Hitchcock, who say, well, this wasn't the man that I knew? <laughs> Aren't they lucky? <laughs> and how, why would they know? Why would they have the same relationship that I would have? Can you watch other Hitchcock films? Oh, yes. Yes, I can. And fully appreciate And they're two that. entirely different things. Two different things. What do you mean? Yes. You're separating? Yes, totally separate. My, my, my uh, uh, feelings ab about him, my thoughts about him, uh, but... He was a very talented man, did incredible things. Okay, so I'm joined now by Amy Cantu, who is a librarian at the Ann Arbor District Library and a film buff and a Hitchcock fan, but she doesn't like vertigo. <laughs> That's true. So we may discuss that, and uh, we're going to discuss the episode that we just went through, Revenge, 
So thanks for joining me, Amy. Glad to be here. So did you have some things that you just wanted to say off the top about this episode? Well, actually, I liked it. I saw a couple of classic Hitchcock moments in there. It was suspenseful. I liked the twist at the end. I thought the murder scene was pretty spectacularly done. Yeah, I like it too. And I don't think I said that because I've ruined it. You know, I've done spoilers through this whole thing. But, but, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth seeing. So did you know this episode? Did you know what the twist was at the end? No, no. Okay. And actually, I have my own sense of what could have been the twist. I don't know your first impression. There's the obvious twist, but there's maybe even another twist. Ah, okay. Well, I'd be interested in hearing what the other twist is. Well, first of all, I just want to say I actually did really like the episode. I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of, you know, Ralph Meeker. He wasn't the greatest actor for me, but well, I feel like we should talk about maybe things that were confusing or didn't make sense first. Okay. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, you've probably already gone all over well, about the I, carnation and everything. Yeah, okay. Well, let's, I want to hear about what you have to say about that because I want to hear about coming from not knowing the episode, too. See, my deal is that I remember this episode really well. Okay. And I don't know when I first saw it, but it was years ago. And so I knew what the twist was, watching it again. I didn't remember a lot of these details, and I didn't remember a lot of the Hitchcockian stuff. So, yeah, go ahead. What well, about the carnation? Okay, first of all, the establishing shot of the trailer park, the whole setup. Why were they there? You know, it leads into it. Um, he's leaving her. She's sort of alone. There are neighbors are close by. What are they going to see? What are they not going to see? All of that tension, all that great Hitchcock stuff was there. Yeah. And, you know, the slow build, the reveal at the end and everything. So immediately, though, for me, I like Hitchcock and I like the way he sets. I like his camera use. I like his eye, all of that. But as we were saying about Vertigo, I'm always... Just assuming he's going to mistreat the woman. And right. I felt that right away. Yes. The way Aunt B, and I can't ever remember her real name. So yeah. the way she looks Francis at her. Francis Bobier. Thank you. The way she looks at her, the fact that it starts out where she's wanting more amorous attention from her husband who's getting ready to go to work and who's leaving her there. And we don't know yet at that point why she's really there or what her breakdown was or whatever. If that, I don't even think, think we even know that she's had one. Right from the get-go. No, not right from the get-go. Right from the get-go. It isn't until she talks with her neighbor, right? Yeah, there's some hints when she's having breakfast with her husband. Yeah, but she's wishing kind of he wouldn't go, and she's lingering, wanting to linger in bed and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you immediately see that she's a very sensual woman. You don't really know where that's going to go, but with Hitchcock, you know, probably it isn't going to end well. Right, exactly. <laughs> Right. So that's the first thing. But, yeah. but I do like Vera Miles. I thought she did a great job. So, yeah, the carnation, what, the deflowering her? He was a salesman who would typically wear something like that, and she would have grabbed it off his lapel when he, let's admit it, raped her, because that's what we're not hearing. That's yes? right. So that was confusing. And then I don't know if it was just the time, the era, but she couldn't say he raped me. Instead, he killed me, which actually was interesting because he did kill her. Yes. She was a complete zombie afterwards. So it was okay, but it was an odd choice of words. I mean, I don't know. Didn't you feel? I like it. I should add that I also read the short story, and in the short story, she says he killed me. But the story is also very different in a lot of ways. He, 
he doesn't call the police. They just decide to leave, and then the whole thing happens with oh, there okay. he is, and okay. he kills a guy, and there's no evidence that the police are ever involved. And there's these lines that I actually quoted earlier on where he talks about how he feels this release and this freedom after killing this guy. So in the story, it's sort of all about the guy rather than his wife, I thought. He owns this woman, and then she's been abused, which has offended him. And I don't really get that so much in the in the TV episode. So you think it's more even? Between... I think it's more even. I think that the, the feeling I got in the story is that the husband is like he's got this possession. In the show, I get this feeling that there's real passion between these two, and they really care for each other. His decision to get revenge, I don't think that that decision he's making is all about him. But I think it is in the story. But in the show, do you think the person seeking revenge and the person getting revenge is the man? Yes. I'm I, not so sure. That's okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean. Uh, oh, oh, I see I where might, you're going. That's I'm, great. I might be reading so you're too much saying into this. That, you're saying that she's getting revenge on any man. So or, she's going to repeatedly say that's him, that's him. That would be one way of looking at it. Yep. That's kind of what I thought. Or getting revenge on her husband who's going to go to jail and now she can go back to her career and be a ballerina again. Ah, you know, I never considered that. That's great. I think people might consider that if they saw it today. That's yeah. kind of where I'm going. I'm yeah. not so sure. I, I'm not trying to suggest that Hitchcock was trying to set us up with that kind of twist. I'm not yeah. saying that. Yeah. I don't know that we want to talk about the films that he made after or yeah. you know anything that came after. But So first of all, it's interesting to me that she couldn't say he raped me. But right. now that you've mentioned the, that's in the story, I, I just take that. That's fine. But if, what, four or five years later in Anatomy of a Murder, that is not a problem. But you're talking about TV as opposed to movies well, as well. Well, that's true. Television is a different situation. Yeah, so I kind of felt like, and of course this is way later, but in uh, The Black Swan with yeah. Natalie Portman, sexual repression and mental illness improves your dancing when you're a ballerina. And I think... <laughs> <laughs> and what I wish is that she was the one that was seeking revenge and that she got it. That was kind of how I, I wanted to interpret it. And I, I like realized that. that that's not what we were supposed to I, do. Well, to I, yeah. I'm not so sure. I like that. I'd never considered that, but I like that it fits. Well, and I think with Hitchcock, you probably shouldn't consider that because it's generally the male view. But think about right. it. To me, she's the main character. And to me, she's on screen more. And to me, he just comes and goes. In I, the car. I, I mean, he's nobody until, in fact, that's all he does is drive the car yeah. and bring the groceries in. <laughs> well, he makes breakfast. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> I think she's the main character, too. But I hadn't considered that in terms of her then sort of driving the story after the rape. But she certainly does. Yeah, it's a bit generous for Hitchcock. I mean, I, th I don't think we're supposed to believe she's faking that. No, she's, no, she's, she's, a, she's not a mess. faking. No, yeah. But it is interesting because if you think about it, this bothered me. This one line that she utters, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's something to the effect of when she's explaining to, sorry, Aunt B, she's saying something like that her breakdown was because she was so happy. Too much happiness. Too much happiness. Yes. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, yeah. except for in Vertigo when Jimmy Stewart suggests that Kim Novak might want to just dye her hair because what's it matter to yeah, her? Right. But these sorts of things, I can't quite get past them. But so much joy? So then how are we supposed to interpret that? So she has her breakdown because she's so joyful. Too much joy 
is that another reference to sexual satisfaction that then now he's depriving her of it at the beginning? Are we supposed to make that connection? Well, I I didn't, but, uh, you know. But what does that mean? You know, I took it pretty simply, actually. Before that, when he's having breakfast with her, she has this little speech about what people are like in the world. And, And he says, essentially, boy, you've got this Pollyanna view of the world. And I sort of got this feeling like that's just the way she wants to view the world. She doesn't want to think of any bad stuff. So when she has this breakdown, it's too much mm-hmm. happiness rather than admit that, oh, I, I had a hard time with this or I was miserable with that. This insistence on looking at the world in this positive light, which, as we said, in Hitchcock is going to get you in trouble. I'm hearing you. But if you yeah. look at the world in a positive light, why do you have a breakdown over Well, it? exactly. I don't know if she actually had the breakdown over that. I think it's just sort of she's not going to get into where the breakdown came from. Okay. And so she sort of smooths it over, going to be cheery about everything. But it is a good question, where does the breakdown come from? Because they do mention at some point that they've only been married like a month. Okay. You know, so they're yeah, newlyweds. Yeah, I figured like six months or something. But yeah. Pretty, I mean, it's, it's pretty soon. Yeah, they're pretty much newlyweds. And they seem to get along great. So I don't think the breakdown has come around because of anything, he, the way he's treating her or anything no. like that. So maybe it's like, you know, the pressure of the ballet world. I don't know. I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't tell us, which is interesting. But that's um, why I immediately assumed that it wasn't her career and that yeah. if there was any sense that she was exacting revenge on men or, or her husband, it was for taking her away from her career or her life or her happiness. Anyway, that made me wonder if she was troubled in a different way. Well, <laughs> yeah. she doesn't give us much in terms of what's really going on underneath. No, right. Well, you were talking about the carnation earlier. Yeah. And um, whether it just means she was deflowered, is it supposed to show he's a spiffy salesman or what? So what do you think? And Well, I was reading some stuff, and there are some people that think that Mrs. Ferguson is implicated in some way. And because <laughs> and she gives this look to her. As the camera sort of moves up and down Vera Miles' legs mm-hmm. while she's sitting in the lounge chair outside, that's sort of the look that Mrs. Ferguson gives her. And she, the look on her face is sort of disapproving, but it's also sort of this look of attraction. Yeah. Um, so people have gone wild with this. The carnation maybe came from Mrs. Ferguson's garden, oh, okay. you know, right. all this kind of stuff. And she's involved in some way. But, I, you know, I just don't see that. And I think the carnation is nothing more than sort of a deflowering reference. Right, right. To me, and I can still vividly see her look because he lingered on it. It yeah. was good. Yeah. And it is noticing the whole picture up and down her legs, but the look to me clearly said, "Oh, I don't know. Oh, gosh. Okay. This is a little this is not quite right for this trailer park and the people that are here." That's it said that pretty clearly to me. But Okay. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good that's a nice thought. Actually, it isn't a nice thought, but <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> I think it's overthinking to say, oh, she was involved right. in some way. But there certainly is out there in terms of people's reviews of this episode. Yeah. So. Um, so anyway, yeah. No, it was good, though. But what did you think of the shot of the murder? I mean. That shot is classic Hitchcock. It's yeah, great. It's really great. The only thing about Ralph Meeker there is that I did believe when she's in the bed, he seemed upset there. But in the car and when they stopped and he goes in. I didn't gain the sense he was internalizing it all and just full of rage. That's where his acting left me a little. 
Okay. I like Ralph Meeker in this. And and I sort of felt like in those parts in the car and going to commit the murder that he's become sort of traumatized as well. And it would have defeated the purpose for him to be manic and upset and, you know, just yeah. really obvious because he would never have been able yeah. to pull it no, off. It has, it to, has be to be cold. Very cold and automatic. And yeah. there's a moment that I think is really interesting. And that's that when he stops the car and gets out to kill this guy, he puts money in the parking meter. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so it's all very calm and I'm parking and I'm putting the money in and then I'm going to go in and I'm going to kill this guy yeah. by beating him to death with a wrench. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? That's great. So, um, yeah. And then at the end, we know he's going to get caught right. because we hear the police sirens. Right. Hitchcock immediately comes on and is like, see? Yeah. Says, yep, wasn't a good idea. Right. And you know now that he's going to have fun with all of this. Right. Which is nice. It is nice. At the same time, I think it's kind of weird, particularly from this perspective, where he says something like, well, that was a pathetic couple. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it's like, wow, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you want to treat them with a little more a little more feeling here. I mean, they just went through some really bad stuff. Well, they were a pathetic couple. We had intended to call that one death of a salesman, but there were protests from certain quarters. Naturally, Elsa's husband was caught, indicted, tried, convicted, sentenced, and paid his debts to society for taking the law into his own hands. You see, crime does not pay not even on television. You must have a sponsor. Here is ours, after which I'll return. Maybe we should talk a little bit about this episode in terms of, like, vertigo and in terms of Hitchcock and his dealings with women. I guess, like I said earlier, it's unfortunate that they're always beautiful and you know they're going to get it. To me, Hitchcock has set us up for that. On one hand, you sort of know that you're going to get a new twist. You know you're going to get great suspense. You know you're going to get brilliant camera angles and the buildup, but it's frustrating that it's as though you know he's going to punish her for being beautiful and for tempting the men. It's annoying. It's Hitchcock, and it's annoying. Right. When we were talking before about Vera Miles in the men's shirt and the two-piece suit, I think I actually started to sound like I was starting to blame her. <laughs> you know, no, I and I know. didn't I didn't really want to go there. But, but it, I got thinking there. about there's B went there. Yes, it she went, went there. there so. And there's I started thinking about that film that I think is called The Accused with Jodie Foster, mm-hmm. where she's raped. And the excuse from the guys is, well, she was asking for it. Right. Right. So I think in the context of this episode, if you're watching this, if you're a, an Eisenhower American male in 1955, watching this episode when it's first on, you might say, well, you know, she was asking for it. Right. You know, and I think that that's intended to be there. You're right. So to go back and say that that's what Hitchcock does. But um, I think he even goes one step further. I think it isn't just she's asking for it by being beautiful and wearing provocative clothing. It's women. It's just she's beautiful. And also she she's wanting a little bit more than she should have. And I think we get a little bit of that right at the beginning. She doesn't want him to go. We're newly married. Please don't go. And she's very demonstrative and sensual. And I think he often puts that in there. It's in every one of these shows. And it's very much in vertigo. He's, you know, over the top that way to me. Well, do you think Hitchcock, when he, in anything he's directed, he's sort of 
projects himself into the male character that's dealing with these beautiful women sure. because he would like to deal with these beautiful women in ways other than just being the manipulative director. Yes, and unfortunately, a lot of what we've read about yeah. him as a person and as a director bears that out. He hasn't got the reputation for being the nicest no, nicest guy. But again, I can separate that from his talent as a director and his eye, which is remarkable to me, and his ability to take the time to build suspense and to provide the twist and the, the camera shots. And I know his reputation for storyboarding. Yeah. I've seen a lot of those storyboards. I've seen how he looks at his art and how he directs, and it's, it's brilliant. You know, there's some exceptions, but I have no quarrel with any of that. But well, the women leave me cold, and the women are punished. And yeah. he has a habit of doing that that is unfortunate. Is this why you don't like Vertigo? I feel when I'm, when I'm watching Vertigo, I feel like Kim Novak is a puppet, is a doll that he's manipulating. It's like a marionette, and everybody's doing that to her. And every single woman in the show, the real wife who's killed, Madeline dies, Judy dies, and they're all puppets for the men in the movie. And yeah. it's just, I can't. And it's not just those characters. It's Barbara Belgetti's yeah, character. Yeah, although at least is, she's an trying, artist. But she keeps trying to get Scotty to be attracted to her. And at a certain point, I can't remember what it is, is that after she does that painting of her in the dress, yeah. she just disappears. She's just gone She completely disappears. Yeah. And is that, oh, oh, here's a woman who has a career and a life and things, but she has to be punished for having a life. If you're not a puppet for the man and you're a ballerina... Right. Or a, a model, because even at the end of Rear Window, Grace Kelly has to at least pretend that she wants to go camping with Jeffries. You know, <laughs> she has to sneak her little fashion magazine in there. You can't be who you want to be. You have to be a puppet for the male. And it's it's everywhere. The birds is no better. So yeah, I hesitate to go too far, but I don't think I'm the first one to say this. So No, <laughs> no. And, and Vertigo, I, to me, the driving around in the car, all of the times he's driving around San Francisco and looking for his, it's, it's pretty brilliant. And, and I recognize that the psychology is, and the camera use is something we hadn't seen before. But oh, I do not feel anything for any of the females in the movie. And I don't like Jimmy Stewart, I guess. You know, it's, it's one of those non-Jimmy Stewart roles, too. Well... <laughs> See, I I think it's a brilliant film, I but I agree with pretty much what you're saying. But that's part of what makes it brilliant, I think. Jimmy Stewart's character, I think it's brilliant to cast Jimmy Stewart because Jimmy Stewart was always, almost always, cast as a really likable, good right. guy. Right. Sort of the all-American guy. Right. And ultimately, he's a horrible human being in Vertigo. Yeah. What he forces her to go through is totally all about him to really ups at an obscene extent. I can understand everything that you're saying, and I agree with that, but I also think that all that stuff is what makes the film great because you're not dealing with anybody likable, really, except probably Barbara Belgetti's. Right. Even Judy has done this horrible thing for money, I guess. I can't remember now. So there's nobody really to hang your hat on here. And it's just also fascinating that Hitchcock decided to do it because it is pretty much what he did with all sorts of of mm -hmm. the actresses that worked for him, in particular, the whole thing that Tippi Hedren talks about in terms of trying to control their lives and 
do their hair exactly like this or yep. whatever, you know. And they so it's really him similarly. out there on the it, on the film, Hitchcock naked in a way that, that you don't see in these other things. So. Yeah, who said it? Was it that uh, that like Cary Grant was who Hitchcock wanted to be, but Jimmy Stewart was who he thought he was? Okay. Something like that. I read that somewhere. I like Jimmy Stewart a lot, and I even like him. I like his acting, and I thought he did a, a pretty great job in Vertigo. Let's let's yeah, face it. He does. And and I don't even mind that he's not in his, a typical Jimmy Stewart role so much as it just was bothered by Kim Novak. Is she a good actress in this? I guess. I think she is. I, I think it's like the best thing she ever did. I guess, but I also don't think she's the greatest actress. No, I don't either. Uh, I don't know. either. And I mean, if whatever, Picnic, it's the same thing. And Bell Book and Candle, oh my God, that's the worst. But whatever. <laughs> For her, it, it was good acting. Yeah. It was just, yeah. I, yeah, I, no, I think she was actually just made for the role. Why? I think a lot of it is the look, the way that she is crafted with the blonde hair. The gray outfit. Look, the the whole... gray outfit. And then the switch over to Judy. I think she does a great job sort of making that transition. Could just From be... high class to low class? Yeah, well, it <laughs> Well, you know, well, I'm I mean, just asking. yeah, well, sort of, so but you, you know, I mean, she's a diff- she becomes that. like a different character. I may just be revealing right now that, like Hitchcock, I'm attracted to her in that film. You yeah, know? yeah. So, well, um, who isn't? And, yeah. But is that the reason for it to be? What do you like about the film other than Kim Novak? Well, what, is, what what makes it the number one sight and sound? Yeah, film I don't. Of all time? I don't know if it's the number one film of all time. Well, but as I said, I just think it's beautifully crafted and I think it's yeah. Hitchcock exposing himself the Jimmy Stewart character that you think is going to be a nice guy and is not and so you end up sort of identifying with him because he seems like he's Jimmy Stewart and he's this good guy and then you sort of spiral down with him until you suddenly go wow where am I here I'm supporting this guy who's saying dye your hair it can't matter to you <laughs> you know so I think it takes you on this ride that is not really expected. Psycho does that wonderfully well. It takes you on a ride that you don't expect. Just like Janet Lee and Psycho, about halfway through this film, we think that the Kim Novak character is dead. Mm-hmm. And then so the, where do you go from there? So I think it's really a beautifully crafted, really fascinating ride. And it also looks it at sort of the dark side of more than just the guy who's committing murder. You end up looking at the deep, dark side of the Jimmy Stewart character mm-hmm. and of the Kim Novak character. And it's Hitchcock at his best storyboarding, as you said. So. It, and it is. I think, though, if you're a female and you're looking at that, you can't identify with Kim Novak at all because the character that they wanted her to be, that she was paid to be, it doesn't ring true at all. It isn't a thing that any woman would imagine themselves doing is my feeling. Yeah. I mean, she does it for money to begin with, I think. And then I don't she remember falls now, in love with them, But I she's guess. supporting this murder by doing this. Right. And then, yeah, she apparently falls in love with him. I think there's like one little scene where she admits to herself that she's in love with him. Otherwise, you don't know. It's just, it's just, it's um, just absurd. But, you know. <laughs> it is absurd in a way, yeah. I mean, I can identify with but, Janet Lee more than I can Kim Novak. I mean, oh, yeah. Well, Janet Lee is just them. embezzling and then yeah. going to change your mind and <laughs> has the unfortunate situation where she runs into Norman Bates. Yeah. But, Which is a great surprise and a twist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So... Like I said earlier, I I actually really do think that people watching Revenge now would have a different idea, possibly, of who was seeking revenge and who got it. You know, it's interesting. I'm trying to cover all the bases with all these different things. And one of the things is that there was a um, remake show in the 80s of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. 
And the very first one after the pilot they did was Revenge. And so I watched it. And? And it's not very good. It has sort of all the indulgences of the 80s. It has Linda Pearl playing the woman. Linda Pearl? Linda Pearl. Remember <laughs> Linda Pearl? Yeah, I do. I can't imagine that. Well, the 50s episode is like very, as you said, it's like this small trailer park. It's all very condensed. The 80s episode is vast. They're not in a trailer or anything. They're in a house, in okay. a big house. The husband is a professor of English. And the woman, I guess, was a ballerina. It begins with this really weird sort of dream image of this horse being captured that's running on the beach, right? What? Her husband talks her into going to like this dance class. They dance to like Phil Collins music and she gets going. Oh, and this sounds it's, awful. It's awful. It sounds really <laughs> awful. They're like in Venice, California or something. And she's like walking by the beach and encountering all these different people who like give her the eye or try to ask for money. They're shaking her up more and more, you know, and it just goes on like this. But one of the things that really struck me about it is that when it gets to the point where she does the that's him, that's him, as opposed to Vera Miles, who's very withdrawn, the script for Linda Pearl is different. She gets like really adamant. So they're driving along and she goes, Bob or whatever his name is. I can't remember now. That's him. That's him. And he goes, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Stop the car. That's him. You know, this kind of stuff. So, it's like totally wrong. So so the thing, if you want to go back to the this episode and Hitchcock in general and Vertigo, because I admit it, yeah. his economy... The quiet, the things that aren't said but are implied, the time he takes to let those things build up with you, the viewer, Yeah, I so appreciate those because what you're describing in this remake is the exact opposite. That's right. And you can see when you look at his storyboards and then you see the film, you can see how formal and how reserved in a way and how structured and the economy of his filming is remarkable. And I appreciate that almost above anything else with Hitchcock. I want to thank Amy Cantu for joining me. I hope to get Amy back again for the major episodes, the Hitchcock-directed episodes and the classic episodes. So I hope we can make that happen. I'd also like to thank Tom Elliott for his helpful hints and advice Tom does an absolutely brilliant Twilight Zone podcast called The Twilight Zone Podcast. It's available on iTunes and at his website, thetwilightzonepodcast.com. That's not just hyperbole. It really is that good. He's more than halfway through the series, and each episode is better than the last, but you should start at the beginning anyway. And I want to thank the Ann Arbor District Library for hosting this and for having so many of the materials that we talked about. The episode itself, Revenge, and the Alfred Hitchcock Presents, a look back documentary, are both on the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 DVD set. The library also has The Wrong Man on DVD, Donald Spoto's The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock, and his Spellbound by Beauty are also available as is the Crime Suspense Stories, Volume 1, which includes the Johnny Craig story, Murder May Boomerang. The actual short story by Samuel Blah is available online, as is the 1985 remake of the episode. The library also has all of the Hitchcock films we referenced on DVD, 
and most of them on Blu-ray as well. If you would like to contact me about this show, you can write me at scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. So let's wrap things up. You'll recall that in their closing narration, Hitchcock and Allardyce are completely unsympathetic to Carl and Elsa calling them a pathetic couple. Again, is this just 1955 talking, or is this Hitchcock at his worst? And if Hitchcock was such an awful man in so many different ways, should we even examine his television program or watch his films? Well, that's always an interesting question, separating the person from their art, whether we should, whether we shouldn't. In this case, we're going to continue to explore the television series as a series. Remember, Hitchcock only directed 18 of the 360-plus episodes, though he is the host in every one. We've taken a good long look at Hitchcock's views and treatment of women, so we're aware of those. And we'll keep those in our back pocket as we continue. Next time, Episode 2, entitled Premonition, starring John Forsyth and Cloris Leachman. That was beautifully put. In fact, after hearing that, there's nothing more I wish to add. So, good night until next week. 